Sometimes as leaders, we make decisions that just feel right to us, but occasionally they're contrary to what the data indicates. On this episode, how to start delivering measurable business impact through people analytics. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 323. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. If you're tuning into the show for the first time, you may or may not have ever given much thought to data and analytics in your organization. And if you've been listening for a while, you know that we we talk about a lot of aspects of leadership. And one that we have not talked about very much, and my fault, is, is not really looking a lot at data and analytics and how we are utilizing those important resources in our organizations to make decisions, to lead more effectively, and to ultimately benefit the people that we are there to serve. Today's guest is an expert on this and has just released a new book. I am so excited to be able to speak with her. Her name is Jenny Dearborn. Jenny is Senior Vice President and Chief Learning Officer at SAP, the world's largest business software company. She's responsible for learning, development, talent management, leadership, succession management, and organization development for the approximately 90,000 SAP employees worldwide. She's been recognized as one of the 50 most powerful women in technology by the National Diversity Council and as an industry leader on applying data and analytics to workforce development and human capital transformation. She is the author with David Swanson of the new book, The Data-Driven Leader, A Powerful Approach to Delivering Measurable Business Impact Through People Analytics. Jenny, welcome to Coaching for Leaders. Thank you so much. Really excited to be here. I'm so excited to talk with you. Uh, and I, as I was thinking about our conversation today, I was thinking back to when I started in the training business about 15 years ago. It seemed to me as a as someone working for a training company and going to talk to organizations that the most obvious place to start building relationships was in HR departments and uh, corporations. And yet multiple people in my industry at the time warned me about building relationships with HR people because they had discovered that a lot of the HR leaders were not perceived as business partners within their own organizations. And my sense is over the last five, 10 years, that is starting to change um, substantially in some places. And one of the things that caught my attention in your book is you say intuition and emotional intelligence that were once the hallmarks of successful HR professionals are no longer sufficient. What's changed? What's different today? Well, with the changing business environment where we have you know, we're on the precipice of the fourth industrial revolution. We have data in, in everything. Every device that possibly can be is connected to the internet. Everything that can be automated is automated. And we're on a path to even greater. There is, there is data in everything. There's a tremendous amount. And we, as an industry, have been using data externally with customers. Marketing organizations have been using customer data to better drive advertisement to more personally market to you, things like that. We, you know, insurance organizations have been using it for 10 years to understand how to craft policies just to do things like that. So a lot of customer facing, consumer facing organizations have used data with their organizations. And we sort of woke up as, as a, as an industry a few years ago and said, gosh, we really should be 
using this data internally in a corporation to understand how we can perform our jobs better as corporate people. So it's not just how do we take customer data and focus it externally on creating better products and services, but we can use data um, internally on ourselves to understand how we can be more efficient, efficient and effective and productive and really you know, serve the, the company to a higher level. I noticed you referenced Harvard Business Review article in the book that warns about relying too much on intuition and also the failure for a lot of us to understand the relationship between cause and effect. Tell me more about that. Where's the danger there? Well, we've been very comfortable for a lot of years using instinct and intuition. And the generation of leaders that we see now grew up in a world where that was really valued. And what we have now with leaders that are coming online now is a real comfort with technology, with data, with using data and facts and information to make decisions. And so we need to be able to sort of transition ourselves as a leadership community to that place of comfort where we can make decisions that are really grounded in facts and data. We did a show last week on personal finance, a little outside of our normal leadership topics. And Whenever I've ever seen advice from like a financial person to someone who's not really handled much with their finances before, one of the first things they say is, well, start just tracking where you're spending your money. Because if you know where you're spending, then you can start making some decisions. And uh, one of the things that was interesting to me is you mentioned in the book that just 8% of organizations say that they have usable data, while less than 10% believe that they understand which dimensions of talent are performance drivers. And those numbers really struck me because I guess my my sense is is that a lot of organizations aren't even at the point where they've they even are collecting data or even know what to collect. So where do you when you are working with an organization like that or talking with uh, HR leaders who are looking at this? Where do where do you start? So you start with the same steps that you would do as a corporation overall, where you say. What is the market that we're in? What is the environment that we're in? What is the geopolitical forces, market forces, whatever? A really good understanding of the context of where you are. And then you say, well, what is our purpose as a company? What are we here to do? Within the context of the world, what is our reason for being as a company, as an organization? And then you say, within that purpose, well, what are our goals and objectives to it would help us achieve that purpose? And then you keep peeling the onion and you say, well, what is our strategy to achieve those goals and objectives? And then you, now you're down to your, now you're down to your people. Well, do we have the human beings? Do we have the people that can help us achieve that strategy? Do we have the talent that today that we need to achieve that strategy in in the future? And if not, why not? And if not, can we go get them? Can we grow them internally? Do the people, the people that we have today, can they become the people that we need in the future? Or do we need to go outside and, and source them from the world? And so if you, if you sort of start with that bigger picture and you peel it, you know, you peel away those layers and then you say, well, what type of human beings do we need? What are the knowledge, skills, capabilities, competencies, behaviors that these people that are in the service of this company, what do they need to be able to do 
to achieve that future state. And I think a lot of HR leaders don't do that. They start with, we need to go hire some, you know, we need to go hire 10 engineers and four project managers and whatever. And so there's not really a clean uh, red thread from the world environment, right? The context, which is incredibly important, through the company's purpose, goals, strategy to the talent strategy, and then really creating a strategic workforce plan or a strategic talent plan that looks to five, seven years in the future and says, we have 100 data scientists now, three years from now, we're going to need 150, seven years from now, we're going to need 600. This is how this trend is growing. What I'd like to see HR professionals in the future do is I'd like to see them be closer aligned to the other members of the C-suite and the overall corporate strategy. So if you, if a corporation starts with the global context of geopolitical events, global market forces, et cetera, and then the corporation says, well, what is our purpose? Who do we want to be within this global context um, or local context or whatever that uh, business context is? Um, And then from the purpose, the corporation asks itself, what are our goals and objectives, you know, that are specific that we would put in place to achieve that purpose? And then the corporation peels that back even one layer and says, okay, what is our specific strategy to achieve, achieve those goals and objectives? And then from there, the corporation creates a strategic workforce plan or a strategic talent plan and makes sure that they have the right human beings to make that happen for the corporation to be able to achieve those goals. And so uh, my challenge for human resources professionals is to be more closely aligned to the C-suite, to that bigger picture strategy, and make sure that the talent plan is, is very tuned and aligned with that, with that bigger corporate strategy and, um, and the people that the corporation is hiring, that HR is hiring, is, is part of that future workforce plan. One of the things I love about the book is that it really exemplifies beautifully um, an HR leader. It's a fable, uh, for, uh, and it, it exemplifies an HR leader who is very present in the organization, ten, spends a ton of time researching, getting to know other executives, getting to know their businesses. And my sense is when I've interacted with senior HR folks who are not as effective in their organizations that they tend to be more isolated. And and that what you've said is just so essential of getting into the business of everyone within the organization and and learning how to serve. And that's actually a lead into one of the key points of the the book is you talk about the four stages of analytics and how to... uh, how an organization can utilize analytics. This is kind of new for me, Jenny. And I, I'm thinking for a lot of our audience, utilizing analytics and data is not the skill set that a lot of folks have learned. And like you said, that you know, in, in in our generation, this wasn't as the technology, the big data that wasn't as present when a lot of us entered the workforce. Could you tell us a little bit about some of these four stages and just what what we should know at high levels so we can start to ask the right questions? And, and maybe I don't know what makes sense. Should we walk through each one or just look at one of the key areas? What do you what do you think would be most helpful to people? Yeah, but let's 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 walk through them. Okay, so first one is descriptive analytics explanation. And by the way, you point out that these aren't necessarily sequential in the books, but so we've got four of them. What is descriptive analytics explanation? Yeah, so descriptive analytics is you're you're basically asking 
what happened. It's backwards looking, you know, you're, it's rear view mirror looking, and you're just gathering the basic facts. So the, what I, what's important about analytics for every stage is that it is unemotional. You don't factor in one person who's screaming their head off, right? It's like, okay, let's look at the facts. You're, there's one person that's upset over here. There's 10 people over there. You know, it's, you're looking at unemotional data. And it's just what are the facts of what happened in the past? So a lot of organizations that I have encountered will think that they're doing analytics, but what they're really doing is reporting. And so you'll, you know, if you go into an organization, you'll say, you know, who is your analytics person? And you end up meeting someone who is running reports. Interesting. What's the distinction between analytics and someone who's running reports? Well, so analytics is the analysis that you put on top of the data. So reports is just lists of facts. It is like, you know, so in, in learning, in, in, in my space, uh, it, reporting would be 200 people came to this class. They, it was a two-day class. They gave it a 4.5 out of five stars. 700 people went to this other class. Over the course of the fiscal year, it got an average of 4.3 out of five stars. Who cares? <laughs> what? Yeah. Well, and that's how every no organization reports it too. In my experience, is like right. how many how yeah. many butts were in seats? What was the uh, evaluation right. score at the end? <laughs> and research shows that those level one evaluations. There are three things that lead to those level one evaluations, which was the quality of the catering, the temperature in the room, and was the instructor funny? So yeah. <clears throat> I have had leaders say to me when I've said, you know, 200 people came to this class and it was a two-day class and gave it a 4.5 out of five stars. They'll say, I, that, that tells me nothing. I mean, that you might have just wasted an incredible amount of people's time. No idea if you're saying whatever you did that, caught, that took two days made a damn bit of difference. No idea. So reporting is just lists of activity, right? You're not triangulating any of that information against each other to say the people who went to this class that gave it a high score actually performed better on the job Hmm. or the people that went to this class and gave it a low score performed less well on the job, right? Now you're actually giving me something that's informative, right? It's not just lists of, you know, it's not just a spreadsheet, but you're actually giving me some analysis top of that. So what I tell people when I, when I meet people is they'll give me some reports and I'll, and I'll, I won't look at it and I'll say, tell me the story of what this means. Ah. How, how does this help me? How would I make a decision based on this, these list of facts? And if we can't figure out what the story is, or what this information is telling us, then we know that we don't have the right information or that we haven't done any analysis of it. And the best way to do analysis is is to start mapping information against each other. So we'll say, everybody that came to this class that was in this particular category had this particular results. Or, you know, people who came to the class and came to the class, did the pre-work and came to the class and did the post-work they have these results. People who came to the class have these results. People who came to the class and didn't do the pre-work, but also did the post-work, they have these other results. Okay, now we have categories of people and we can start to draw some information from all this data. So descriptive analytics, level one analytics, 
is really just saying what happened. And a lot of times that's in a lot of organizations, the activity is reporting, but they will call it analytics by mistake. Mm, makes sense. And so this, the second stage is diagnostic analytics explanation, which I'm guessing is also looking back. Uh, what What's different than just descriptive? What does what uh, the diagnostic process do? Right. Well, where descriptive analytics looks at the past trends, diagnostic analytics looks at the causes. So the step one, you say what happened and diagnostic analytics, you say, why did it happen? And you're trying to look into some of those causes. And so the more you're able to triangulate pieces of information against each other, the more you can start to say why, the more Mm -hmm. you can start to answer that question, why? So there's the looking back, but then there's also the looking forward. And I think that's where stage three starts to do that predictive analytics explanation. What does that encompass? Yeah. So predictive analytics, you start to make predictions. You start to say, well, we've seen enough examples when we've done diagnostic analytics, when we've done looked at the causes that we've said, here is what is consistently similar with all of our top performing people, our top performing sales reps. Here is all, everything that is the same about them. And here's everything that is different. And you can start to then make predictions and say, well, if we were to set up this, this similar situation in the future, um, where all of this background information would be the same, we can predict that we'll have the same results. And the more data you're able to pull in, the higher the level of your certainty is that your predictions will be accurate. And you need to test this and, and, and calibrate the algorithms when you, when you do them yourself. But if you have six data points that are all consistent and lead to success, you might say, well, I have a 50% probability that these are the enough factors that predict success for a sales rep. And then you bring in somebody with those six factors and you run them through the process and you say, okay, did they add to the pool or not? Now do I have seven examples of, of this leading to success or did they contradict the hypothesis? And so the more people in your data set that are all consistent with the more variations and uh, of different factors, the higher your certainty is that your prediction is accurate. So working with small data sets is is interesting and but there's still a lot of guesswork the larger your data sets are the greater the likelihood is that your predictions are accurate and that your analytics are accurate one of the phrases i really like in the book is good enough accuracy and so you make the point that you know whenever you're predicting of course you're going to make errors it's never going to be perfect but you want to collect enough data so you get close enough that it's going to make a measurable impact on the results um and and then i think stage 4 is where the kind of the strategy piece comes here in prescriptive analytics explanation. What's what's that final step? What are you doing there? So that's when you're understanding really the best course of, of action and you are making an intervention and prescribing a path. I just, something that you said, the, the, the good enough accuracy, I, I just want to go back to the last step. It, that depends on what is the definition of good enough really depends on the industry that you're in and kind of what's at stake. So there's going to be uh, good enough accuracy at one level if you're selling software. 
there's going to be a different threshold of what is considered good enough if you're doing something with medical devices. Right. And there's a lower threshold for if you're doing something in retail, like, ah, do you think this display will work at Christmas? I don't know. Let's give it a shot. You know, so depending on the, the, uh, what's at stake, the, the good enough threshold is going, to be, is going to be different. But going back to level four prescriptive analytics, you're really looking at what is your best course of action? What should we do? You're asking the question, what should we do? And you are, if you're, when your data set is large enough that your probability is high enough, your, your probability of certainty of, of, your, of accuracy and your predictions is high enough, then you can get to the place where you can prescribe a course of action. If your data set is too small, you can't get to that place where you are prescribing. And you can say, even before somebody takes a class or even before someone has a problem, you can you know, have machine learning involved that can then recommend a solution, an intervention, something that a course of action that someone should take before they know that they have a problem. I'm struck by the reality, of course, of cost in a lot of organizations and the you know the level one assessments we do at the end of a, a training class, for example, as as we've been using the example, are are so easy to do. They're they're very inexpensive. They just take a few minutes. Um, and I I'm I'm imagining there's some people who are you know in a, a smaller medium sized organization that maybe they have a small HR team or maybe just a few people, and they think like okay you know all this all this data like what's the what's the best way I can collect it? And so when you're working with someone who's just starting for the first time to think about really getting good at starting to get their hands on some of this data and starting to analyze it. What's the best place to start if they've not been ever doing this before? Maybe it's very little data that the organization's collected. I would be surprised that the organization, if the organization has very little data. I think organizations have a lot. They just don't know it or it's not organized or they didn't notice it before. Um, and I would challenge um, HR teams in, in every, you know, I've worked in lots of companies and consulted with lots of companies and learning and development tends to, in every place where I've, uh, where I've seen is one of the highest bars of the Pareto chart. If you were to sort of Pareto out the expenses, I mean, learning and, you know, putting on a class and bringing in a third party vendor and travel and catering and instructor time and all that stuff, that's not cheap. You know, learning budgets, can be very, very high. And, and when I think about all the waste of giving the wrong people the wrong information at the wrong time, and it wasn't really the right person in the room, or they only needed to know about half of what you said, or you, the timing was wrong because they can't put it into action straight away. They're going to have to wait three months until that situation comes up at, you know, on the job, and now they've, they've forgotten 80% of what you said. You know, there's a lot of organizational waste in that whole model. And if we could just turn the whole thing on its head and see the data that is underneath us differently and approach learning and development really differently, and instead of thinking about, okay, you are a project manager level one, here is a long list of everything a project manager level one needs to know from the beginning to the end. And we're just going to slog you through all of this content from the beginning to the end. Or you're an engineer level three, and we're going to just run you through this whole curriculum. Really, people need relevant information that is highly contextual 
in the moment. And that's one of the things that data and analytics can provide. It can understand exactly what the gaps are and recommend, you know, when you can get to prescriptive analytics, it can push out to individuals exactly what they need in the moment. And so you're just taking your spend as an HR department and transitioning it from teaching classes, the spray and pray approach that hopefully something sticks when, you know, it might be a great class, but it's not the class that this group of humans needs at this particular moment. So you take that spend and you adapt it towards an analytics frame of mind where you gather the content, you gather the the data that's already in your organization and you change your approach to learning and development to be contextual, in the moment, pushed out in small pieces right when your learner needs it, you might spend the same amount or less in a year if you completely changed your approach. Mm. It, it sounds like what you're saying is it's not necessarily that the data isn't there. It's that the organization hasn't really thought about utilizing it and is not recognizing and not actively having it as part of the strategy, if I'm, if I'm hearing you right. Exactly. Ah, exactly. Okay. So 8% of organizations recognize that they have data that is usable and use it. It's entirely possible that the other 90% of organizations have approximately the same amount of data they're just stepping over it over day and don't really know what that lump in the carpet is. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody ever takes the time to go, what's under here? Oh my God, I had no idea you were capturing all this information. <laughs> you know, it's entirely possible that it's all there. They just don't have the habit of looking for it. Well, and so much of, I mean, as, as you pointed out in the book too, there's so much data that's just being collected automatically with all the software platforms we're using these days and many organizations, exactly. even at small businesses. Um, we have access to so many analytics that we didn't have five or 10 years ago. If we're willing to just turn over a few stones, uh, there's a lot there. And that's where I, I, I'm conscious of the point you make too, is you know have someone on your team or bring in a consultant that's an analytics person that can really look at that and help you to ask some of those questions. That seems like such a such a key lesson for us. I, I'm conscious too in the book that you give the example of the HR team running into some obstacles with other senior leaders in the organization in both getting access to data and in people actually buying into the conclusions that the data shows. And I suspect in organizations that haven't done much of this, that would be an obstacle. Um, I, yeah. I, and, and I'm guessing that in some organizations, that that is a pretty challenging process. For people who are in an organization that's really adverse to using analytics, or maybe they've just never had any experience doing this for whatever reason, what do you find is the best foundation to lay in order to help people gain trust, especially with the rest of the executive team? I would avoid sort of public blaming, shaming, and naming. I mean, you have to do a lot of trust building, a lot of making people feel safe, a lot lot of one-on-one conversations where you're getting your key stakeholders really comfortable with championing a project. So, you know, a, a great thing to do is to go external and to look at the data sources that are relevant to your industry. How are jobs changing? How is the industry changing? Uh, what are the future knowledge and skills and abilities that are needed by the human beings in your industry? Ask your C-suite, do we think we're ready 
for these changes. Are the human beings that we have today, are they the same humans that we're going to need five, seven, ten years from now? And, and if not, why not? And how could we change and adapt to get ready for this? I mean, start by asking some open-ended questions to get people thinking that maybe it would be a good idea to, well, let's get, why don't we gather some facts? Why don't we gather some information to help inform us as we wrestle with some of these, these challenging topics, right? How do we think we could gather this information? Who in the organization might have bits and pieces? Like, like you said just a second ago, you said there's, ton, you know, every software package that every functional area uses gathers information. Is there one group in the corporation that's pulling all of that together, right? You might have tons of information in your services organization about all of your employees and how much they call into the, the, the service help desk. And then you have, you know, personnel data, and then you have data in, a, in, in each functional area, you have employee data and information. And maybe you want to ask yourselves as a corporation, how might the people in our company need to adapt and change? We want to help them. We want to help them grow to be what our corporation needs to be, to be wildly successful in the future. Let's ask ourselves some challenging questions. And if you, I think if you approach it like, hey, it's us, all of us working together. This is not, you know, I'm going to call out your department and I'm going to, I'm going to look for evidence in your department that you guys are inefficient or something like that. If you kind of approach it like, hey, we're all in this together about doing what's best for our people, I think you'll have less resistance and, you know, you'll have less pushback in politics. So it's, it's certainly sensitive. It's certainly a delicate topic. As, as you were talking, I was just thinking back to an hour ago before we started our conversation, Jenny, I, I pulled up my notes. I, I read books on Kindle and I pulled up my notes and I looked and there, there was a button that said export your notes on Kindle. And I don't know if it was there before. I just never noticed it, but I hit the button and it emailed me this beautiful nine page PDF of all the notes I'd taken in your book. And I was thinking to myself, wow, I had no idea that functionality was even there. And, and I might end up posting it and sharing it with folks who, who are interested. Um, but I... Uh, it, it just goes to what we were saying is we have all these systems and yet sometimes we've got this, these, this, all these wonderful things right under our noses, but we just don't know the look for them because we're so used to doing whatever we've done. And so if we can just raise some awareness and build the relationships, like you were saying, it, it really makes a big difference. In a non-judgmental, non-threatening way where you're really going with your, your palms open and saying, I want to do what's best for our corporation. I'd like to facilitate this conversation. I don't have all the answers, but I know we need to work together to come up with a solution that's to the greater good of the people of this company. Will you go, will you walk on this path with me? And, you know, that sort of humility and bringing integrity to the conversation is super important because it, it can be very threatening. It can be very intimidating for long established leaders to think, what are you going to do with this information? How are you, how might you accidentally expose me that I have been mismanaging my department of whatever, finance or services or facilities or whatever? You know, what, what are you, at, you know, what magic are you going to do with some scary data scientist millennial, you know, they're going to come in and, and some smarty pants is going to illustrate that I've 
been a fool all these years and been mismanaging the company's resources and I'm embarrassed and I want to, I want to avoid that embarrassment. So I'm going to, I'm going to hold all this information close to my chest. So really making sure that you build bridges is incredibly important and, and sell the collective vision about how this is the right thing for all of us together and, and the employees that we serve. I saw an article about you that reported that sometimes you paint on long conference calls. I do. I, yeah. And I'm I, not painting right now. <laughs> I, I'm in my studio. I'm in my studio. I'm surrounded by my paintings. I'm staring at my paintings, but I'm not actually painting right now. Well, I saw photos of some of your work and I noticed you paint superheroes a lot. And I do. I, I suspect there's a lot of differences, of course, between painting and running a global HR organization. Uh, but I, I, mean, I am curious, what have you learned from painting? that's made you a better leader? There is a humility and a, a selflessness that is so important as an artist to give yourself up to the creative experience that you need to let it go. You can't micromanage the canvas. You can't, sometimes art is going to go where it goes and uh, it's not going to be what you intended, but it might really surprise you and be really incredibly beautiful. But I've always been very partial to superheroes. I, I grew up reading comics and I've always been a, you know, a, a huge uh, comic nerd. And, and uh, there is a selflessness and a standing up for the little guy and uh, justice and doing the right thing. And there's this wonderful integrity with the classic superheroes that really resonates with me. And I just, I also just love the art. I mean, the colors and the vibrant, you know, lines and, and imagery is just so cool. So my house is filled with, filled with, uh, you know, eight foot by 10 foot, you know, massive canvases of, of very bold uh, superhero pop art, which is super fun. Awesome. Well, I'll put some links in the notes and I just, I can't think of a better uh, analogy for us to end on of, of leadership. But cool. Jenny, thank you so much for sharing this book and challenging those of us who are not data people, who are not analytics people and making, you know, really creating a, a book here that has a model that's very accessible to every leader, not just HR leaders. And uh, I'm really challenging us to look that way. I really appreciate uh, you bringing your wisdom to us. Thank you so much. It's been a real joy to connect with you. I appreciate it. Jenny Dearborn is the author of The Data-Driven Leader, A Powerful Approach to Delivering Measurable Business Impact Through People Analytics. Thank you so much, Jenny. If you know someone who'd benefit from Jenny's insight on data and analytics, I hope you'll pass along this episode to them and check out her book as well. I think it'll get you started on how to put together the framework to implement this in your organization. And you heard me mention during the interview that I was able to capture all my highlights from the Kindle version of the book that I read and am realizing I can actually do that from all the Kindle versions I've read in the recent past. So I'm going to go ahead and share those on the weekly show notes this week and also in the weekly leadership guide. So watch for that. You can download all my highlights and notes that I've taken as I'm reading the book. And uh, if you find that helpful, I may uh, let me know. I, I may include those in future episodes. For those of you who'd like to just see what I'm highlighting and commenting on as I'm reading books and preparing for interviews with uh, authors and experts who come on the show. So let me know what you think of that. You will need to have your free membership active in order to download that from the website. If you don't already 
have your free membership activated, you can access it right away just by going to coachingforleaders.com. And right on the homepage there, you can set up your free membership. It will give you access to the entire podcast library from the last six years, the member cast, my library, now some of the book notes. Uh, also, you'll get instant access to my 10-day audio course titled 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. You can get access to all of that just by going to coachingforleaders.com, set up your free membership, and that will give you everything you need as far as uh, all those resources, plus a whole bunch more that's there. Thanks to all of you who have done that. Uh, I was looking the other day, almost 7,000 people have activated their free membership in the last year since we set up the free membership. It's really been a successful portal and a great way to even get more out of the show for so many folks in our listening community. So thanks so much for those of you who choose to do that. Uh, A few related episodes to today's conversation. Back on episode 150, Bonnie and I talked through the three steps to take after you conduct a survey. Of course, surveys are one of the ways to collect data and analytics. So if you are doing a survey, thinking about a survey, or maybe you just completed one, I'd certainly recommend listening to episode 150. Also on episode 224, how to lead through uncertainty and change. Uh, Jenny and I talked a little bit about how to use data and analytics to influence the change process on episode 224. Jacqueline Farrington was on, uh, talked about how to message that, uh, how to lead effectively when change is happening. So check that out if that is something you are dealing with right now. And then also, uh, speaking of change, uh, John Cotter, who's probably the leading expert on change in the world, episode 249, Cotter was on talking about how to succeed with leadership and management. If you haven't heard that episode, I think you'll find it very helpful. Uh, In addition, you'll also enjoy Cotter's thinking on the distinction between leadership and management, which he has done a lot of writing about over the last few years. So check that out. You can access any of those past episodes just by going to Coaching for Leaders dot com slash the episode number and next week i'm glad to welcome bonnie back to the show it is not going to be our q a show but we are going to be doing a holiday gift giving guide for leaders how about that we haven't done this before but we were talking recently and we have all kinds of things resources books services we've been using over the last year or two that we've recommended others and we thought we'd put together a gift giving show for you or people that are close to you. So watch for that next week. Thank you also to Jess in the UAE, Terry in Canada, and Matt in Australia for the kind reviews on iTunes. Uh, Thank you. All three of you said such kind things. I so appreciate it. If you'd like to leave a rating or review for the show as well, go to coachingforleaders.com slash iTunes. That's the best way to access it. Thank you so much and see you next week for our holiday gift giving show. Take care. Bye.